This is a Dubai Eye 103.8 podcast. Hey there, this is Sonal, and you are listening to the Offscript podcast. Today, we are bringing you a true crime story. We're speaking to Sarah Weinman. She is the author of a book called Scoundrel. It's all about how one man almost got away with murder. The Offscript podcast. Our guest today is Sarah Weinman. She is the author of a book called Scoundrel. She's something of a true crime aficionado, much like you, Chris. She writes and studies true crime. She's the author of Real Lolita, A Lost Girl, An Unthinkable Crime, and A Scandalous There's Masterpiece as well. There's only one thing well. that she differs with Chris in, mm-hmm. is that he hasn't written all those <laughs> no, novels no. on true crime. I've got yeah. to say, scoundrel, unutilized word. Love the word scoundrel. It is a good word. Yeah, it absolutely is. Yeah. It's sort of more in keeping with someone from the sort of a couple of centuries ago, isn't it? A wee scoundrel. We would say it in in Scotland an awful lot, you wee scoundrel. But anyway, nice word, good word. Out of all the different things she's written about, this is the one that we're going to focus in on, is her book Scoundrel. So before we get too much into this, let's set up the characters involved. This is true crime, obviously, so it's a real life story. Exactly. You'll understand fairly early on who the culprit is here as well. But what's remarkable about this story is what happens after this individual is convicted, specifically how he managed to convince many people of his innocence. And we'll get to the center of this story, a young man by the name of Edgar Smith. Edgar Smith is a 23-year-old man. He's fairly recently married. He's the father of, of an infant girl. He and his wife and daughter live in a trailer in Bergen County, New Jersey, which for those who of you are familiar, you just take the George Washington Bridge across from Manhattan and you end up in suburban New Jersey. And Edgar was someone who thought highly of himself, but didn't really apply himself in life. He went to multiple high schools. He washed out of the military. He had trouble holding on to a job. He was the kind of person when his wife gave birth to their daughter, he had trashed the trailer and basically said that his wife and her friend should clean clean it up because he was just too busy for that. So he wasn't somebody who was terribly responsible. One of his friends said, that he was someone who, even though he was married, he still thought of himself as a bachelor. And that's kind of how he lived. And so in this town, which was fairly small, people tended to know one another. And even if they didn't know each other super well, they sort of hung out together. So that's how Edgar got to know this 15-year-old girl named Victoria Zielinski, who lived in the same town. And she would go out on dates with an acquaintance of his they were friendly. They weren't like close friends or anything, but he, they were in the same social circle. And that's how on the night of March 4th, 1957, when Vicky went to study at her friend Barbara Nixon's house, she and her younger sister were supposed to sort of go together, then split apart and then meet up. They were supposed to meet up at a predetermined place and then walk back home. And Vicky didn't show up. Right. She didn't show up, and not too long after the fact that she went missing, the body of 15-year-old Victoria Zelensky had been found murdered. Within 24 hours, Edgar, who we heard about there, Edgar Smith, was picked up as a suspect. The reason was this was not a clean murder. There was blood all over his pants, the car he had borrowed from his friend. The circumstantial evidence pointed pretty clearly in his direction. He was questioned by the police. He didn't give a straightforward confession, but he would say things like, it hit me really hard. I must have been the one who really did it. You know, kind of strange cryptic statements that you could kind of see as as admissions of guilt. So what did the police and prosecutors piece together about what had happened on that fateful night? 
because there was just so much circumstantial evidence, what Bergen County, the police and prosecutor's office were able to figure out is that Vicky had left her friend's house. And then on that journey home, a car stopped and it was Edgar. And she knew who he was because they were acquainted through her sometime, not quite boyfriend, but just this guy that she dated. And so she got into the car and depending on whose version you believe, and I tend to err on the side of the prosecution, Edgar made some advances and Vicky fought him off. And this led to a violent confrontation. And eventually they both got out of the car and he smashed her head in with a rock. And she, her body was found at the bottom of an embankment. The story that Edgar told was essentially some other guy did it. And in fact, he explicitly pinned the murder on this acquaintance of his and said, well, yes, Vicky was in the car and we did get into an argument. And then I did slap her. And then we continued to argue outside. But then this other guy showed up and I left him there. And it's preposterous. And everyone knew it was preposterous. And that's why the jury took less than two hours to convict Edgar of first degree murder and sentence him to death. But the story didn't end there because Edgar was determined to stay off death row. He, was de he refused to die and found every which way to do so, first by education and reading and improving himself, and then by getting the attention of a significant right-wing figure named William F. Buckley Jr., what struck me is how compelling the evidence was to the jury that they were convicting him within two, two hours. hours. That speaks volumes, doesn't yeah. it? But that being said, it's 1957. You know, there are different police procedures in place. We all know that sometimes even though people are convicted as guilty and unanimously and quickly, yeah. that doesn't necessarily mean that's the case. We've seen wrongful conviction cases before. So let's talk a little bit now about William F. Buckley Jr. What does he have to do with Edgar? Now, it all started because Edgar had read and praised a magazine called The National Review. This is something that Buckley had founded. Buckley was a public figure, a particular conservative commentator. He would write editorials, even had a TV show, which we'll come to. And Edgar had gotten in touch because his access to this magazine had been cut off in prison, and Buckley began, began a correspondence with him, promising him a lifetime subscription to the magazine because Edgar had been very sort of uh, complimentary yeah. of it. There was a lot of flattery involved. But from there, that's a simple correspondence about a magazine subscription. How does William gain anything more from getting involved with and even advocating for a convicted killer? As a colleague of Buckley's at the magazine that he founded, National Review, told me, it really boiled down to they never expected someone who thought highly of their magazine and who wrote so well could be a savage killer. And for Buckley, he obviously was a conservative and very formative in the conservative movement in America in the 20th century. He was also a Catholic. And I think that informed a lot of his sort of private dealings a lot more than people realize. And that also ties into something that I found very interesting, which was he never let ideology get in the way of a good friendship, and he really valued loyalty. And so here is Edgar, who's just casually mentioning that he had had access to this magazine, and then when a prison official was moved, it was taken away. This gets Buckley's attention. He essentially says, you can have a subscription for life. And first, this colleague corresponds with him. And then Buckley himself picks up the correspondence. And just over time, through 
the many letters that they exchange, Buckley really does come to believe in Edgar's innocence and this idea that even at the bare minimum, he should get a new trial. And so he does go above and beyond. He writes this big piece for Esquire. He helps get him a book deal. He writes an introduction for this book. He goes on talk shows to plead for Edgar's life. And he sets up a defense fund. He finds him legal counsel. And he really does believe that there's a genuine friendship there. It's only later when everything would essentially implode that he realized that this was false. Now, the Esquire piece that was published in 1965 was titled rather solemnly, I would say, The Approaching End of Edgar H. Smith Jr. At the end of the article, there was information of how to donate to his defense fund. And many people actually did. A lot of the public were compelled by that article. They donated to the defense fund. And William himself had put up a lot of his own money to get him more effective counsel. So where does the story go from there? And why was William, who was a public conservative figure, so willing to go out on a limb for Edgar like this? What was the hold that Edgar seemed to have on him? I think a lot of that manipulation had to do with telling people what you wanted to hear. Because because he didn't just do that with Buckley. He also did that with the book editor that Buckley put Edgar in touch with, Sophie Wilkins, who was very instrumental in getting that first book, Brief Against Death, which was a nonfiction account of Edgar's arrest, trial, and subsequent legal quag- quagmires, and essentially making the case for why he shouldn't be on death row. And what I can say is that I knew the whole story. So I knew exactly this trajectory. And still, when I would read Brief Against Death, or when I would read the letters between Edgar and William F. Buckley, or Edgar Smith and Sophie Wilkins in particular, I felt myself kind of getting sucked into his manipulations and his charms. He was really good at it. He was a very good letter writer. And it was this fascinating thing where even when they would meet him in in person, and it was this very heavily moderated thing on death row where... You had to have a mesh screen and you couldn't actually touch or really, you know, have much in the way of communication. And Edgar was not a very impressive person in real life. Like his accent would grate or he had teeth issues or he would be taciturn and and reticent to speak. But then it's almost as if when Buckley or Sophie left the prison and got back to the letters that they could take refuge and be like, oh, well, this is actually the real relationship happening. So there's just a lot of cognitive dissonance. And it does happen that you buy into manipulation and you're so wedded to that belief that even what's plainly in front of you doesn't necessarily disabuse you of the belief. So if it could happen to, quote, erudite and educated and intellectuals like William F. Buckley and Sophie Wilkins, it really could happen to anyone. It's just that you have to be primed for being manipulated in a a particular way. For Sophie, she was dealing with a lot of alienation and loneliness and taking care of a mentally ill spouse. For Buckley, I just think that he just went all in because of his particular background in nature. And of course, this would prove to be a terrible idea. It is amazing how many people out there can be manipulated. Mm. A lot of people see the good in people, right? Yeah. But it just shows you there that in the case of Edgar, he knew fine well what he was doing. And if someone reached out to you, Chris, yeah. um, if Edgar reached out to you, right, as he is now, right, would I... Would you entertain it? Would well, you, no, I'd obviously have to... Would it intrigue the, you? The case notes, etc. Would it intrigue me? Yeah, it would. I would do my due diligence. Of course I would. 
and I'd make sure that you know I'd I'd read up on the case and ascertain whether I do think that he's got a genuine case that he is someone who has been banged up, innocent of the crime that he has been convicted of. Stephen Avery making a murderer case in point you know my thoughts on that from certainly everything that I've read and I've read copious amounts I mm. do not believe that Brandon Dassey or Stephen Avery should be in prison in, in Wisconsin I think that's a really good question though because it's easy for us to look at this particular case in hindsight and there's already been enough foreshadowing that you get a sense of where this story is going to go right yeah. but when you're looking at a wrongful conviction there's so many different pieces that you're looking at you're looking at police files about things perhaps that were incorrectly done in terms of Mm -hmm. police procedures. Um, You know, you're looking at different stories and perhaps, you know, if somebody, if Valentino Dixon, who we famously talked about on this show, had reached out to the golf editor of Golf Digest magazine. And if that person hadn't taken some interest in his story and really believed him, an innocent man would still be in jail. Absolutely right. But you know, every now and then a story comes along and it's compelling and somebody decides they are going to go out on a limb. It just turned out that this one obviously went in a different direction. Now, I was curious about how the jury could be so certain deciding of a man's guilt in two hours that they could be so quick to make their judgment. Edgar, you'd think as a manipulative person, as somebody who could kind of reinvent himself, somebody who could present himself in a certain way that's appealing to people, how could he work this magic on Buckley, but not the jury? And Sarah was explaining, listen, Buckley wasn't part of the community. He didn't see the character that we had heard about earlier on, uh, you know, the way he used to treat his wife, his kind of delinquent behaviors, and all of the community had seen all of that on display. They had a sense of the background of this story. Buckley didn't. He just was hearing directly from this person who was putting his case forward. So let's hear a little bit about how Edgar could reinvent himself, who how he could mimic a certain style of speaking that was compelling to Buckley. Because someone like Buckley was not going to pay attention to the day the day-to-day life of small town Bergen County, New Jersey, he didn't necessarily know or maybe not even care that Edgar was like this and could essentially craft a narrative of here is this working class guy bettering himself and pulling himself up by his bootstraps. And he deserves a fair trial and he deserves a second chance. And of course, it's always interesting who merits this attention, who merits those second chances? Why is it that white men tend to get that benefit of the doubt from certain quarters? But if Edgar had been poor and black or brown, he might not have. And in fact, in a very ironic twist... Much later on in their correspondence, Edgar pointed out to Buckley this fallacy and essentially argued, well, why would you pay attention to me if I wasn't white? So remarkably self-aware. Fairy. You know, and this was, of course, eventually this relationship had soured, but he was calling him to task on that, that part of the story is that he was this white man from a working class background. And what's remarkable about this story is that with this new legal support that Buckley had helped to provide, he was able to get another day in court. So how did public opinion and other factors as well, the time that we were in, in the 60s, how did this impact how this would go for Edgar a second time around? This is when the famous Miranda warning started to become codified this idea that you could ask for the right to remain silent and you had a right to an attorney. So things about the court and criminal justice were very different in the mid to late 60s than they were in 1957 when Edgar was convicted. And so 
kind of in this retroactive way, the Supreme Court does rule about a month after Brief Against Death comes out in 1968, that Edgar's confession was coerced, that it should be thrown out, and something should be done. It takes a couple of years, but he does win the right to a new trial. For a lot of reasons, he and his lawyers decide that it's a lot more effective for him to plead guilty to time served instead of fighting for a new trial when nobody really has the stomach for it. So by December of 1971, after serving more than 14 years on death row, making Edgar the longest serving death row prisoner in in American history at the time, he does get out, gets into a limo, and goes across the bridge with Buckley, and they go tape episodes of Buckley's uh, television show, The Firing Line. At the time, Edgar was sort of at the top of the world. He was this minor literary celebrity. He would go to parties. He would get speaking gigs. He would go into talk shows. But that wouldn't last forever. Wow, I'm amazed that I have not heard of this story. Yeah, so he spent his 14 years in jail for the suspected murder. He's then released He did almost, plead guilty. He's re- released as a hero, despite the fact mm. he's pled guilty. He's released to a limousine. He's now part of Buckley's yeah. show, The Firing Line. He's on TV shows, chat shows. He's become a quote-unquote hero. So that ways. Firing Line episode, in fact, that he features on, I mean, he is questioned about why did you plead guilty? He's questioned on a number of things. One of the things he was questioned on as well is his rehabilitation. This was on the show in 1971 after his release. This afternoon, the judge seemed to indicate that he felt you were an excellent example of rehabilitation. Yeah. Now... Assume that to be the fact. Uh, is your rehabilitation uh, a direct result of facilities available to you during your incarceration, or is it a result of uh, extraordinary self-discipline and intelligence on your part? I commented on that just recently. I said the best thing that the state of New Jersey ever did for me in terms of rehabilitation was to leave me alone, not to bother me. Because if, if there's any chance of anyone in prison being rehabilitated, the chances are that the prison authorities will find some way to interrupt it. So Edgar moves out to San Diego after his 15 minutes of fame as a released prisoner. He gets married a second time around to a much younger woman who was described as being quite naive, quite innocent. But a similar pattern in his life starts to emerge from what we heard about his early years. And he writes this letter to Buckley after they've been out of touch for a while because He's essentially run out on debts, and Buckley has to cover them. And he basically says, well, here I am. I'm in a place. I'm married. I can't seem to get work. My wife's supporting me. It seems like history is about to repeat himself. And it takes a little bit of doing, but essentially his efforts to get work are increasingly rebuffed. He may or may not get involved in something to do with drugs And so by October of 1976, when one last attempt at work is turned down, the old rage comes back and he takes his wife's car and goes out to a shopping area and he sees a woman emerge and drives up and grabs her. And she came very close to losing her life, but luckily fought him off and managed to steer the car back onto the highway and get out and other people were witnesses, and then Edgar drives off and is a fugitive for a while. And to make a very long story short, he calls Buckley's office. Buckley's assistant picks up. She immediately relays the message that Edgar is in a hotel in Vegas, 
And Buckley takes that information and calls the FBI. So even though Buckley had labored under this belief for so long that Edgar did not kill Victoria Zelinsky, he did. He was the one to end it. Wow. He realized very quickly that he had made a mistake. I think a lot of people could, you know, through their own ego, hold on to old beliefs. Mm. But he instantly realized when this second incident happened that he was mistaken about the character of this person that he had corresponded with for years and had become what he thought was a good friend to. Now, let's get to Edgar. He was convicted in early 1977. He ended up spending 40 years of his life behind bars, his whole life essentially. He died in 2017 in a California prison. He did continue to write nasty letters to harass his second ex-wife. Sophie, who was the book editor we heard about earlier, had a lot of guilt for her role. She wanted nothing to do with him. Buckley wrote one final time about the case. This was in 79 for Life magazine. After that, he never wanted to discuss it ever again. He felt a lot of public embarrassment over the issue, but he did express private misgivings. This one lawyer I talked to named Jack Carley did tell me that he had had a conversation with Buckley where he felt that Buckley felt a lot of remorse about what happened. But Carly also assured him, it's like, well, we were just doing what we were supposed to do with the criminal justice system. We believed that there was a coerced confession. We believed that there were errors in the trial. And whatever happened as a result of that, you know, you can't necessarily blame yourself. I mean, it's obviously very complicated. And truth be told, I also think that Edgar's confession and interrogation was extremely flawed and should have merited in a new trial. But thinking that also means examining how the criminal justice system in America worked before Miranda and creating a lot of uncomfortable questions of a larger nature that I think people don't really want to reckon with. So ultimately, justice was served and he did spend the rest of his life behind bars. Thank goodness that that girl, the second girl that he attacked, Mm. got away. The Offscript Podcast. We hope that you enjoyed this episode. Please do go ahead and click subscribe. You can also check out our other podcasts, Time Capsule or The Big Interview. Find it wherever you get your podcasts. 